Dwight Pentecost, the Presbyterian pastor and seminary professor who ministered from the mid to late 1900s, he tells a scandalous story of church division that took place in Dallas, Texas. The story goes that this church became so bitterly divided and entrenched in that division that each side mounted a lawsuit against the other for the church's property. Despite the fact that Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, warns against Christians taking fellow Christians to public court. Well, of course, you know how that goes. The story spread to the local area and then got picked up by the newspapers and it garnered a significant amount of attention in Dallas and in Texas and in that region. And the judge seemingly was the only one that had any sense to try to quell the, uh, the uprising that was happening. He ruled that the church must first take matters not to the public court, to the state court, but to their ecclesiastical court, meaning their church court. And so, indeed, the case went before the denominational leaders of this church. And after some deliberation, eventually one side won the dispute. And they were granted the right to that church property, while the other side withdrew their case and formed another congregation in the same area. Now, that's American Christianity 101. We've seen that happen time and time again in this country. Now, the outcome of this was reported in several Dallas newspapers, but what especially delighted readers to no end was when the reporters got to the bottom of what started this whole fiasco. Now, if you had to guess, what would you think started such a seismic civil war in a church that the whole region knew about it. You'll never guess what actually did. Here was the inciting incident. The trouble began when at a church fellowship, an elder was served a smaller slice of ham than the child sitting next to him. That's a true story. That's where it started, and that's how it ended. Now, of course... Yes, we laugh at this. It's funny because it's such a farce. But the reality that underlies it is a real spiritual tragedy. Because for decades, this has not only been the de facto state of American Christianity, but this is what is expected of Christians. This is what our public witness has become. And this is how we are often seen by our communities. As not a countercultural, otherworldly body of love and grace, of forgiven sinners who have found real life in Jesus Christ. That's not how we're perceived so often publicly, but rather as this bunch of self-aggrandizing and hypocritical and ignorant goons. Now, personally, I feel like we evangelicals deserve so much of the scorn and ridicule that we get in popular culture. So many of the skits we see on Saturday Night Live or the TikToks that go viral making fun of evangelicals probably are deserved in some way. And while appreciation for the church may be at an all-time low in our nation, and perhaps, again, deservedly so, nevertheless, we Christians should not be a people of despair. Even when the state of the church looks precarious, 
Karl Barth wisely noticed that there are no letters in the New Testament, not a single letter in the New Testament, apart from the real problems of the local church. In other words, all the wisdom, all the truth, all the beauty we receive from Paul and Peter and James and John and the other writers of the New Testament, all that beauty is is written to us because these real people are just struggling churches just like we are. And so we can take great encouragement then that the, the problems that were facing the church 2,000 years ago, the persistent problems we face today, the Lord has a response to those things. We don't need to be a people then of despair. And the Philippians are no exception to this problem. Their political and, and social pressures that they're facing from the outside threaten to turn them against each other. They have been put in a pressure cooker of Roman culture. That's not unlike our own day, is it? We too are pressured into turning on one another constantly, of talking poorly about one another, of disowning people, so we can save face with a society that really only sees us as a voting block or a shopping demographic. And so Paul's solution to this pressure, to the problems that both the Philippians faced in the ancient day and we American Christians face in our own, the problem, uh, or the, rather the solution to the problem of selfishness, of division and pride is simple. Humility in Jesus. That's the answer. That's the key. That's the way forward for us. Now before we dive into these four short verses together, remember where we've come from. Remember last week. Paul reminds us, as his audience, that faithfulness to Christ means that we can expect a lifetime full of suffering. If you want to be a Christian, you're going to have to become comfortable with the reality that you will suffer because of it. There's just no way around it. Our being citizens of heaven, that's one way Paul calls us as Christians. He identifies us as that. As citizens of heaven. That will mean that the citizens of this world will see us as hostiles, as foreigners, of people not to be trusted. And they will see us as enemies of their personal agendas, of wealth, of power, whatever it may be. So despite their resistance, whether in the ancient day or in our own day, what Paul tells us is we have a real opportunity to live lives worthy of the Gospel by displaying something that's been previously unknown in the life of our enemies. And he gets into how we can live that worthy life today. That's what this passage is all about what this worthy life looks like in practice. If you're like me, and someone encourages you to do something, it's helpful to have some steps, helpful to have some idea of how you can implement that in your own life. And that's what we see in verses 1-4. through So look with me today at our passage. Now commentator Lynn Coick notes that this, this one block of text... Paul really pulls out all his rhetorical stops here in these four verses. He's really trying to appeal to us 
on not only a logical level, but on an emotional level, on a human level. And these four sentences, or these four verses rather, are just one big sentence in Greek. All these ideas are connected and intertwined together. And he's trying to galvanize the Philippians' heart and their soul and their strength and their mind together towards a vision of unity within their congregation. They're facing pressures from the outside. How can they be unified in the face of that kind of opposition? So he alludes to some things here that help them to think about what they believe. He alludes to the action of the Trinity. He alludes to the salvation that is theirs alone in Christ. He alludes to their membership in the community of faith. And then he really subverts cultural expectations by saying, now that you know all this about God and Christ and the church, he calls them to a life not of arrogance or braggadocia or self-aggrandizing, but a life of humility. Now the virtue of that day in the ancient world, not unlike our own day, the virtue is not humility, but pride. It's not giving yourself in service to another, but lifting yourself up above the riffraff. Honor and prestige at any cost, especially when it means that you put those around you down below you in a subservient position. So Paul starts this way in verse 1. He says, if then, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship with the Spirit, if there's any affection and mercy, so he gives us four clauses here, encouragement in Christ, Consolation of love, fellowship with the Spirit, and affection mercy. And so we have Paul rhetorically saying to us, if there are any of those things in your life... Now, let's pause here, mid-sentence. He's saying if at the beginning. We read that word if. Now, does this mean that Paul thinks that the Philippians could be living their Christian life apart from these realities. Like, you're a Christian, but you may not have encouragement in Christ, consolation of love, fellowship. Is that what he's saying? No. Paul is calling them to remember these things that they do already have, or that they have experienced. It's like if he's saying, since you have these things, but he's saying it in kind of a, in a, in a, a emotionally engaging way. If this is true of you, with the understood response, and I know it is, he's calling them to remember these realities that are already true of them as Christians. Since or if you can remember the encouragement that you felt by coming to faith in Christ and His person and His work for you, if you can remember the comfort and consolation of His love for you as a sinner, knowing that you fall desperately short of the goodness of God in the past and in the present, but how He's loved and forgiven and accepted you even now anyways. Knowing how fundamentally inconsistent and unconsiderate you are 
if you can remember that, if you can remember the sweet friendship and family that you found as partners in the Gospel, partners with God first and foremost, and then partners with each other, you can remember the empowerment and protection of God's own Spirit on your local congregation. And finally, he's calling them to remember, if you can remember the, the affection that all of this has caused you to have for one another, in good times and in bad, if you can remember the mercy that you've received from your church family when your life wasn't very put together and you weren't your, at your best self, or so on and so forth, when you were suffering some terrible pain or disease or grieving a difficult loss, and you remember being wrapped up in the mercy and sympathy of one another. He says, Christians, if you can remember these things, if you can remember the feeling of joy in coming to know Jesus, if you can remember the comfort in knowing He forgives you of sin and loves you regardless of anything you have ever done, if you can remember the fellowship that you have with other Christians as God's partner in living out the good news, if you can remember the sympathy you found from those church members, Christians, if you can remember that, he goes on to verse 2, then make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, being united in the Spirit, and intent on one purpose. If you can remember, even in your off days, where you feel spiritually far from the Lord, not particularly in communion with your own church, if you can remember those things, make my joy complete by living this life of unity. Now folks, I know you all know what Paul is talking about here when he says, make my joy complete. You know what that's like. When you love someone. When you really care about them. Their well-being and their happiness. You know that you will do things to delight them. To give them joy. And for no other reason than that. Spouses, you know that when you love your spouse, sometimes you'll handle a task or a chore or something you know they really dislike because you want to show them you love them. Parents, you know for uh, a fact that it gives you joy to take your child somewhere they like to go. Maybe if you don't even, maybe if you're bored out of your mind, but you can see the joy in their face, you'll do that for them. And everybody knows this. Friends, You'll maybe go somewhere and see a special, unique item that would make a perfect gift for your friend. It shows that you really know them. You understand their personality, the things that they like, and you appreciate about that about them. So you go and buy that thing and give it to them just to make their joy complete. That's what Paul's talking about here. You love me, Philippians. I know this. Make my joy complete by doing this one thing. How? What? Be unified together. He gives us four examples, just like he gave us uh, four remembrances earlier. And these four examples are this. Thinking the same way. Having the same love. Being united in spirit. 
being intent on one purpose. Now, all of these things have one common denominator. Unity. You can't have these unless you're unifying together. Now, many commentators are keen to point out at this point that this is not the kind of fake, polite nicety that's so common in our modern civil discourse. Where just a lack of controversy means unity. A kind of a passive unity. You know, when we're in line at the DMV to renew our license because we have to do that in person and can't do that online for some reason, we go and we stand there for 45 minutes and we're all looking at each other, nodding our head, oh, this is such a pain. We're in unity, but not in like an active way. Because if somebody cuts us in line, we'll show how not in unity we are when we, we scream, get, get us back in line. We're not in real unity there. Paul's talking about a different kind of unity. A unity that acts in the interest of other people together. You're committed to that. Not just sort of this like, you know, we agree when we go into Walmart, we won't push each other out of the way to get the, the next box of ice cream out of the freezer section. Not that kind of unity. So much of that that's very common today. Paul is not con- so much concerned here with what Kent Hughes calls a vacuous togetherness. You know, we all come here to church with different weeks, different experiences. We're not just all coming here together just well, hello, it's good to see you, be polite and, you know, it's nothing else. We're coming here for an active, unified reason together. It's not just about lacking uh, 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 conflict, avoiding conflict, but rather, Kent Hughes calls this kind of unity a oneness fraught with dynamic power. Our unity is one that is a unity of power. It's a unity of purpose. We come together for a reason. And as an aside, now I don't want anybody to mishear me and think that I'm saying that being nice is not a virtue worth cultivating in the Christian life. Because I think it is. Especially in today's era where far too many pastors and Christian influencers and leaders have picked up the inflammatory and cruel rhetoric of popular politicians speaking harshly and mean-spiritedly to one another because they know that that gets people's attention, that gets clicks on their website, that gets the media's attention. That's not what we are about as Christians, being so bombastic, saying the most upsetting things, disrupting the status quo Uh, speaking the truth in love that people love to say, that's just just being a nasty, cruel, mean-spirited person. A friend of mine was telling me recently that he was coming out of a grocery store, and he's a Christian, he goes to a a church, and he was trying to load up his his car and get his little two-year-old daughter tucked into her car seat and it's the middle of summer. It's there on a blacktop asphalt parking lot. Nobody wants to be out there. It's an inhuman environment. And he's just trying to get home. And somebody approaches him with a gospel track and just starts talking his ear off. And he notices, you know, he's a Christian, so he knows what to look for. 
This person doesn't mention Jesus at all. They just talk about, oh, these people over here want to do this thing and they want us to vote this way. And it's just all cultural stuff. And then he goes on a spiel and, and then he says, well, I appreciate your time, but I'm already a, a member of a church down the road. And without dropping the hat, well, well you ought to come to our church because you'll hear biblical preaching here. And he said, well, I'm, I'm fine. And, and the man kind of, <sighs> kind of gets irritated and, and walks away. <laughs> That's not speaking the truth in love. That's just being a jerk. See, people in our society see that. We think that somehow maybe that gives us points in heaven because that's not an easy thing to do. And we think, oh, they're resisting me because I'm a Christian. No, they're resisting you because you're mean-spirited and you're a jerk. Notice that in the Gospels, the people that love to come be with Jesus are the people that would not typically walk into this place on Sunday morning. They would be having their walk of shame out of an apartment complex, or a hotel, or a bar room. And those are the people that, when they were around Jesus, felt only love and affection towards Him. Because He only emanated love and forgiveness towards them. Now, He would tell people, go and sin no more. He didn't take sin lightly. He came to die for sinners. But that's the effect that Christians should have on people not pushing them away for speaking the truth in love. Now, this kind of communication that seems very um, verbose and well-reasoned and, and just so logical and all this stuff, but it's, it's kind of off-putting, that may be a good rhetorical skill from the school of, from the school of Cicero but it's definitely not from the school of Christ. Christians, we should be, I think, approachable and kind. Now, all of that said, I'm about to undermine myself here. Being nice and pleasant is ultimately not the chief Christian virtue. What Paul would have us do is the difficult thing of being unified together. See, the other... The other side of the road, the ditch we could fall into, is being so inoffensive, so avoiding conflict that we actually don't love people or love Jesus. We just don't want to get involved in anything that will get us in hot water. But that's not what Paul tells us to do either. He says be unified. Unified in what way? That we would have the, that he would have us thinking the same way. Be, meaning being like-minded in our doctrine. Now, Paul is not calling us to be automatons. Everybody in this church is a different person, different personality. If we took a survey of what our beliefs were in this church about anything, we'd fall all over the map. There is not one single person on planet Earth that aligns exactly in every way thinking the same thing about everything else. That's just not going to happen. Paul is not saying be the hive mind. Be the, what, the, the Borg from, <laughs> from Star Trek where we're all just you know one hive mind together. He's not saying that. He's saying be united in the way you think 
be like-minded in your doctrine, your belief that Jesus Christ is the only path to salvation and reconciliation for the world back to God and heaven. That's, he's the only way to that. Be united in that. Be united in Jesus. Now, the way we might think about some secondary and tertiary doctrines, those might be different. Nevertheless, be united in what matters and who Jesus is and who we are in Him. Be united in that. But secondly, He doesn't just say be united in the way you think, but be united in the way you love. Now, love is not just a feeling. We say this all the time as evangelicals. Love is not just a feeling. It's an action. It is not just a, a passive affection you have for somebody, but it is it is something that you do for someone else. Love is doctrine, a.k.a. teaching, put into practice. That's what love is. So when we love one another, we take our doctrines that we believe, the mental things we have up here, we put them into practice for the sake of other people. Be united in love. Paul would also have us be united in spirit, which literally means be one-souled. Just as we are united in doctrine, just as we are unified in actions of love, so are we to be put together as kindred spirits, as soul friends, as people who love one another, as fellow believers in Jesus, and recipients of His grace, despite our warts and all. When you come to know who God is, and you put that into practice through love, you can't help but finding people that have done that same, have uh, the the same thing done in them that Christ has transformed. You can't help but find unity and friendship in the same spirit as if you were one soul living together. That's the kind of way we should live with one another. And finally, Paul would have us be intent on one purpose. We have our belief. We have our love. We have our fellowship. Now, what is our purpose? What do we do with all that? We are witnesses of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, both here and as we walk out those doors. We are to believe and love and fellowship in such a way that our worship is compelling to those around us. That they see that there really is something truly different, not about us that we're special, but about this Jesus that we worship. That He's something special. He's something different than the world can offer. And it's what brings us all together here, even this morning. We come together and our doctrines and our actions and good deeds and our fellowship to show this good news of Jesus for us and for all who will believe it. Now to summarize his point, Paul writes this. If you want to know what this looks like, even more practically, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Don't do anything for selfish reasons. But instead, in humility, consider others more important than yourself. That's a difficult challenge. This week I I went to the library right down here below Ronald Reagan. And I picked up a book that I've been wanting to read for a while. But I'm a slow reader, and sometimes big books can be intimidating to me. And so, but I, I 
found myself, I had the, I had the motivation to do it. So I picked up this book called SPQR, which is a Latin acronym for the Senate and People of Rome. And it's written by a Cambridge scholar named Mary Beard, and she is a historian of ancient Rome. It's just, it's a, it is a modern, uh, retelling of the history of Rome from the most up-to-date research we have. Now, I've been amazed. You know, we all kind of assume things about Roman Empire. Probably a lot of it comes from watching Russell Crowe and the Gladiator. But, you know, we all have these pictures and ideas about the Roman Empire. It has been amazing to me that so much of our knowledge about what Rome used to look like and how it, <laughs> and how it conducted itself that is really coming from some almost hilariously insane propaganda of really gossipy and jealous politicians. So much of what we have today about the bloody wars and economic depressions and attempted coups throughout the centuries in Rome were based on just the conjecture of one politician that didn't like this party. So they wrote a history about who that party was. This is amazing to me how much uh, propaganda goes into our thinking about ancient Rome, even these 2,000 years later. Now, what this reminded me of is that that divided church in Dallas that we talked about and this pagan Roman Empire, they have something surprising in common. I was thinking about this week. Their institutions started to crumble and come undone because of their pride and reliance on themselves. That's what that kind of culture gets us eventually. You can be the greatest church in all of Christendom, the greatest empire in all the world's history, but if all you care about is your own interests, that eventually it will all come tumbling down. And it's this exact kind of culture, one of self-interest alone, that Paul is writing to. And he's making an unbelievable demand of these Roman Christians that live in Philippi. Do nothing, absolutely nothing, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourself. Paul might as well have been speaking an alien language to these people. What a foreign concept it would be to them to do nothing for themselves, but everything for one another. But that's the core of the Christian ethic. And boy, is that a lesson we need as American Christians today. That we need to learn all over again. In our world where evangelicals love to crow about our rights, our freedoms, our liberties, Paul would have us model something diametrically opposed to all that. Do nothing from selfish ambition or greedy conceits, but rather an otherworldly, totally subversive humility. Consider others, even the ones you don't like or think deserve it. Consider others and every thought, word, and deed more important than you. Now that is humility, folks. It's not an easy thing to be done. In fact, it's the most un-American thing we can do today. Verse 4 tells us everyone should look not own, not to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. In a society that's built on me-first-ism, 
in a nation that is so deeply ingrained in exceptionalism that we're number one and everybody deserves to bow, or everybody should be bowing to us. Where we trample each other in stores the morning after Thanksgiving Day for $20 off a TV. Where we're downright cruel to the poor people that are just trying to make ends meet by serving us a burger at the restaurant or, 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 or folding the shirt that didn't fit us back and putting it on the rack. Where we're cruel and mean-spirited to those people where we destroy each other's belongings or reputations or livelihoods just for a chance to go viral on social media. Where we shoot first and ask questions later. In this kind of world, Paul tells us, be humble. Love others even more than you love yourself. Look out for their interests before you even think of touching your own. Do you know why he says that we should do this and how we can do this? What is the battery? Uh, 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 What is is the power core that makes this vehicle go? He answers more clearly next week and we'll get into it then. But I suspect you already know the answer. The thing that allows us to do this, to defy our human nature of selfishness, is the humility in Christ Jesus Himself. This is how God in the flesh has treated every one of us every day of our lives. With humility and patience and compassion and grace. He wasn't too busy, too concerned with being God Almighty. He humbled Himself by becoming one of us and suffering and dying for our sins, not His own, on our behalf that we might forever live in Him again. His humility transformed our lives. It raised us out of death into life everlasting. That's what humility and Jesus can do. Now, brothers and sisters, let me close with this exhortation. There's a lot of nice and fine things in this world. There's a lot of cool places you can visit. A lot of nice things that you can buy a lot of good food you can eat, a lot of nice gadgets you can own, a lot of good shoulders that you can rub up against. There's a lot that this world has to offer you for your joy. But that joy is fleeting. It won't be there forever. So I encourage you this morning to search for a greater joy an everlasting treasure for yourself. Not only in this life, but for the eternal life to come. And you will find that joy, that hope, that peace when you find it in the humility of Jesus in yourself.
look to your great Master who got on His knees and washed your dirty feet with nothing but a smile on His face and love in His heart for you. Become like that. Follow after Him. Take that cross on your back and you will find what you've been missing out on all along. Let's pray. Father, help us to remember the encouragement, comfort, and fellowship and the mercy we've experienced in our Christian lives so that we might seek to live united in our minds, hands, souls, and lives together. And above all, Lord, help us to have humility in Jesus so that we can be like Him and experience the joy of His life in our life and in the ones around us as well. Help us with this difficult but wonderful task all the days of our lives. For it's in Jesus' name alone we ask and pray. Amen.